Hello, I'm Melody Holly, and welcome to the Arise podcast. We are in a series called Questions We All Have But Don't Want to Ask in Church. Today, we'll be listening in on a Zoom conversation I had during lockdown with my good friend Mercy Lokaludu back in May of 2020, shortly after the death of George Floyd. Mercy is originally from Nigeria. She is an author, a speaker, a nurse, a mother, and genuinely one of the most anointed communicators I know. I realize by the time this podcast airs, many have formulated opinions and have almost overthought this topic of race, if that's possible. But what you're about to hear is a genuine conversation between friends. It's not meant to be political. It's meant to be conversational. I pray you can hear mercy with an open heart and a tender soul. I pray that God will use each of us as instruments of peace and healing in Jesus' name. Well, hello, Arise, ladies. This is something I'm super excited to have you join us for our first ever Arise conversation. And I'm here with my dear friend, our dear friend, a sweet um, friend of our church, Mercy Lokalu. Hi, Mercy. Hey, guys. I'm so excited to be with you, Arise, ladies. Uh, yeah, so Mercy's been a friend of our church for several years and really just a dear friend of mine. And um, super thankful that uh, she could join us for this conversation. Uh, very critical, um, important conversation that we need to have on race and the churches, or really at a personal level, the Christian's response um, to what's going on um, with this racial tension um, that we feel as a nation. And it's really touched us all, right, Mercy? Yeah, absolutely. Really excited about this conversation and what the Lord will do. Yeah, and so I know it's a really um, sticky topic. It's very, very hard and I think awkward sometimes for Um, for people to initiate conversations like this. But these are actually conversations you and I haven't just had this week. Um, You know, we're friends. So we've had (laughs) the type of friend that like, and you are too, uh, uh, we we fell, Mercy and I fell in love like immediately. We had an immediate bond when we met each other and um, kindred spirits. And so nothing is really off limits for our conversations. (laughs) So so yes, so we've been having, um, this conversation for a couple of years now, um, and, uh, we've, you know, we had a, 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 you were one of the first people that I called after all of this. Um, just, you know, I immediately thought about you and just wanted to check on you and just to see, um, how you're processing this. And, um, and so we thought it would be a good idea to share this conversation with our, our girls. Yeah. Um, I, that conversation edified me so much, honestly, to be able to just process it with someone who had an objective view, who didn't really necessarily think the same way I thought about every single thing. I think that's important um, in a safe space to be able to process these deep, heartfelt things with maybe somebody that has a different perspective and can show you a different side of it. And I just really appreciated our conversation. I thought the Lord really did um, something in my own heart, honestly, even from that, that conversation. So I have no doubt that he's going to do the same today you know i hope that and like arise ladies that's really our prayer today as we've been praying and i've honestly been fasting the past few days uh just over this conversation in general because i know that um the world would have us um take a very political stance on this but really this is um we want to look at this from a biblical stance and um and we want to know god's heart Um, and, and what is his heartbeat and how do we respond and how do we approach this issue and um, on both sides? And so, um, but you know, one of the things that I really felt like in prayer um, that just grieved me was um, I was in prayer and I was reminded of the words of Jesus um, where he said that a, a nation divided against itself can yeah. And the prophetic words of our savior that yeah. a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. 
Um, and then, you know, I, I read, I happened upon um, this news article that talked about how, um, I think it was anthropologists, I can't remember what group of scientists were basically studying um, America and said that these, um, these historians that look at um, the collapse of nations and civilizations, they have symptoms of a, a national collapse and that America actually was exhibiting every single symptom. Yeah of civilization and it just immediately grew me again I thought about the Lord's words and then the next morning it just happened to be that um, that was in my devotion Jesus saying that a nation divided against itself can't stand so I want to set up um, this conversation first with um, if we think about this great divide it's obvious there's this huge um, divide in our nation right now um, this this war this fighting this this vexation and um, and it reminds me a little bit of marriage counseling that we, that we do like because right. we, so what so when we get um, a husband and a wife that come in um, they want marriage counseling mercy um, have you ever observed some argument and you can tell that the other person is just thinking about what they're gonna say um, <laughs> while the other person's talking been that person by the way and so one of the first things that we do when we bring um, a man and a woman in, in our office with us for marriage counseling is we say listen I look at the wife and I say, listen I'm not going to talk to you about what he needs to do because you can't make him change and then Brandon will look at the husband and say look I, I'm not going to tell you what she needs to do differently because you can't make her change um, what I am going to talk is what is your personal responsibility That's and right. I think important um, that we recognize there are some things that we cannot change uh, I mean really we can vote it's a small little job we can speak but there you know I'm not so worried about addressing a national issue as a personal heart issue with God what do you want me to do what are you speaking yeah. to me personally yeah. and so I think it's really important for any conflict resolution for there to be for both parties to be listening to be listening um, and that's honestly the part that has been the most grieving to me to watch is that I feel like um, just being honest that um, the white church, not all of it, but a good majority of, of the white church has um, not really listened. They hear, but it seems like it's a combative answer right off the bat and they're not listening. So they hear, and even what they hear is not really is not really listening because it's not really understanding what they're trying to say. They're just hearing words and not what someone's trying to say. Um, and I read in Deuteronomy 27, nine, it says, Oh, Israel, be quiet and listen. <laughs> and then, um, and then this is also Proverbs 12, 15 fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen. Yeah. And yeah. such a part of, and I'm going to say this in love, but here are a lot of friends that say, um, I'm not racist, and I'm going to say this, this is wrong, I'm going to say this, I'm not racist, I have black friends, but dot, 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 right. when I look at your posts, I'm just being honest, when I look at the things that you post or you say, it's evident to me that you've had the courage to post, but you haven't had the courage to have a private conversation with that black friend that you're saying you have, and really listen, because if you would have had that private conversation, you would understand where they're coming from. And, and so it's evident by your public stance, you've not had the courage to yet have a private conversation. And so I, I think if we could settle down on anything, I want to have that private, someone's maybe just scared, they don't know what to say, you know, it's not awkward, it's uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I would, I would like to initiate that with Mercy. She's our dear friend, all of us, you know, we love her. And so I want to, I want to be the, you know, the forerunner. I'll have this conversation publicly because I want you to hear um, just another side. And I'm going to ask you ladies to just really listen, to listen and to, to for God to give us um, soft hearts to really, to listen and hear. Um, amen. So you ready, Mercy? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So I want to listen. Um, you are, first of all, you are, you weren't born in America, correctly, correct? That is correct. Um, I came to America at 18 for college. So my first 18 years, I was in Nigeria. Um, so I have a different perspective, I think, than um, most African-Americans who have grown up in this country. Um, so for me, and I'll be, I, I, you, you girls know me, you know I tell the truth and I'm honest. I'm going to tell you truly and honestly how I felt when I first moved to America. Um, first of all, I was appalled by how little people knew about Africa. <laughs> I got the weirdest questions like, do you guys wear clothes in Africa? And do you speak African? And just crazy things. And I was like, read a book, people. But um, beyond that, when it came to the Af my African-American friends, I felt a lot of times that they were very um, aggressive and defensive about things. Um, to be honest with you, whenever they would complain about racial things, I would actually think to myself, well, maybe they aren't treating you that way because you're black. Maybe it's something else. Or I would think, you know, why do we always have to play the race card? Or I would think things like that when they would have complaints about someone following them in a store or something like that because I didn't have that lens. In, in Nigeria, I'm from Nigeria, I'm not a minority, right? There's more black people in Nigeria than white people. So I don't, I don't, I have to be reminded that I'm a minority when I'm in America. I don't necessarily have that lens. So what that's looked like for me to really understand and listen, once I started listening to my African-American friends, I started reading. I started reading books and journals and articles and informing myself about the African-American experience. And that journey, Melody, is what led me to where I am today because now the game has changed for me. Yes, I may not be African-American in the sense I didn't grow up in this country, but my children are. So that has completely changed the narrative for me. But I'll be honest, when I first moved here, I didn't get it. I, um, there's, a, there's a term for what we call race baiting, which is that we feel like somebody's always using race as an excuse for things. And I sort of had that mentality, to be honest with you. I didn't fully understand the African-American experience. I didn't fully understand the systemic racism that was prevalent in America. I had to learn about it. Um, and, and I was wondering if you had to learn about it. Was that just academic or did you get to experience that for yourself? It's both. It's both, right? So the more I read about it academically and talked to my African American friend, the more I noticed it, right? It's one of those things. Once you, it's like when you buy a red car, then you notice all the red cars, right? Um, so I, I, yes, once I started learning about it, I realized that there were some things that we call microaggressions, things that people would say, like, you're pretty for a black girl, right? That's not necessarily a compliment. Um, or you speak such good English. It's saying, I'm expecting you to act a certain way and be a certain way, and you've exceeded those expectations, but in reality, it's not a compliment. Um, 
people just assuming things about me because of my skin color. And um, I'll give you an example of one area where I didn't even realize um, what my husband was feeling that moment. But we, so we live in the suburbs here in da North Dallas, right? We have um, these wooden fences between our houses and we were playing with a ball in the backyard of my son and our ball went into a neighbor's fence. And being a kid, he wasn't even thinking. He just jumped over our fence and went to go grab the ball. My husband was livid, livid with him. And I was like, what is the issue? And my husband said that aesthetic, that picture of seeing a black child scaling a fence in a, in, a, in a state where there's open carry laws and people can shoot you on site if they feel they need to defend their property, sent my husband into an absolute panic. Because he thought, yes, we love our neighbors, but what if they didn't recognize him? Um, what if he was wearing a hood and they didn't see his face and they felt that they were being intruded upon? And so that's an everyday reality, Melody. You know, I don't know if you feel that you would feel that way if your son was climbing a fence to get a neighbor's ball in the yard or not. Um, you know, there's a time that my husband got pulled over and he had to put his phone on record because we weren't sure what was going to happen with this cop. And he was recording just in case something would happen. I mean, it's just, it's crazy, you know, um, it's really, really crazy. So that's, those are some of the experiences that I've had, and I think for me, to be honest with you, the hardest part for me in all of this, when you talk about racism and the effect it's had on my family, is that we had to sit my 12-year-old down and have a talk with him, right? So for Black mothers, the talk is not the birds and the bees and about sex. That's not the talk that we're most concerned about. The talk we're most concerned about is talking to our young Black men on how they need to present themselves into this world so they're not seen as a threat. And we had to have that discussion with my 12-year-old, and it just broke my heart because I could tell that he didn't understand the injustice of it. He, didn't, he was angry and scared and and I couldn't give him all the answers because I don't have all the answers, Melody. I don't know why it is this way. I don't know when my 12-year-old goes from being cute to being a threat. I don't know when that happens. And it truly broke my heart. It truly broke my heart. In that moment, I really just had to lean into the Lord. Um, so sadly, even though I came here not having that sort of chip on my shoulder, that burden has now been placed squarely on my shoulders because um, I'm raising a boy who's the same age as Tamir Rice, who was shot by the cops because he was playing with a toy gun. Um, you know, and that's our everyday reality. So it is traumatic, Melody, it's trauma. That's one thing I really want people to understand when you're listening to your African-American friends tell you about their experiences. For 400 years in this country, African-Americans have not had equal opportunities. Um, They've been living with a burden of racism that has led to systemic and systematic dehumanization. So they're not, they feel they're not seen as equal or even human sometimes. So I, I know it's a lot. I know this is heavy, but I'm really being honest with you, ladies. And I want you to understand that this is not something that somebody has made up. This is not a figment of 
someone's imagination. This is not a media <laughs> talking point or propaganda. This is a lived reality. Yeah. Um, it's um, yeah. reality. You know, I remember um, we had a sweet little couple. They were a military couple that um, started coming to our church back when we were in Tamarack days. And, uh, and so she was from Atlanta. They had just transplanted. And, you know, I'm from Baton Rouge originally. So, um, so she had small kids. And so when I found out, you know, there's this couple here that's moved to West Virginia, this rural community from this big city in the South, the deep South, I was, I just gravitated toward her. I was like, oh, you know, yeah. get in the gumbo, you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Making Southern food and having a close friend that knew what we were yeah. Um, we were talking and, um, and so because they were military, they, they transplanted a lot and, um, and she's black and I, and I, and she, I said, so we're, you know, has it been hard, the, the move? And she said, well, you know, I was a little scared to, to move here because I heard it was a, you know, a big problem with racism here. And I said, um, no, I don't, I don't think so. And she, uh, I said, I haven't, I haven't seen that. And she said, well, you wouldn't really, you wouldn't really see that, would you? And I was like, so embarrassed. <laughs> I, was so, I was like, no, you're right. I, I wouldn't correct. Yes. Yeah. Note is that um, just like a man may would say, I've never experienced feminism. You know, that, um, right. right. I mean, that I've never experienced a misogynism, sorry, that, you know, that I've never um, experienced that, that just because we have an experience of reality doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that pain and it doesn't exist and so um, when we talk about conversations and listening um part of the reason that um i can confidently stand and support and listen to um the african my african-american friends um and know that this is truth and not media is again because i've been having conversations for years with them and i hear the same synonymous stories um, and these are for my friends that I trust. These are not news articles. These are not news. Right. Um, right. One of our pastors uh, that Sunday talked about how he got pulled over seven times in one day. Um, you know, he sat on the side of the road for um, two and a half hours because his headlights weren't on in the middle of the day um, and was searched and had a gun held to his head. So, um, you know, these are uh, my, my friend who's a physician in the area and, um, and, uh, she told me just this week where she had requested for an N95 after all this was going on, she had an N95. She wanted a mask um, because she had to see a patient that could have COVID. And um, she was told by the, the employee to just walk across the hospital, walk outside and go get one herself, you know? <laughs> and, you know, you wonder, would she have told a, a white male physician? Right. 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 And, uh, and so this is a synonymous story that I have heard, you know, even from my cousins who are black and, you know, that I've, when I remember having the, they were the first ones I had the courage to really ask. And, and is this, are you really scared of the police? Because honestly, Mercy, I've never, I felt fear for, I'm going to get a ticket, but sure. I've never felt fear for my life when I've been pulled over. Um, I, the lens that I see through and I have some close friends that are law enforcement and I see them as a protection and a, a place to call. And so I've never experienced that. So it's easy for me to take my reality to this conversation and look back up from that lens and just listen. Um, and so, um, so because I've been having these conversations with you and with my friends and family for years, when I saw, um, the rioting and the the looting, the the really let's just be honest, the anger that is coming yeah. from yeah 
conversation. Yeah. Perspective, I think partly because I had already been having conversations for years. Um, and then also because um, we're involved in, in foster care, we deal a lot with traumatized children. To me, immediately when I see these images, even of angry images, I see trauma. I see pain and, and you know, um, and again, to me, the answer is not doubling down on authoritativeness. It's of listening and hearing, of mediating. And, um, you know, I use the example with someone that I have, I have four children and I have two teenagers and I've learned the hard way, didn't have this at first in parenting, that um, when one of my children is acting out um, or is angry, I can punish them. I can ground them. I maybe can get a control of their behavior, probably not, but I definitely won't win control of their heart like that. Right. Um, usually if I'll hey, come on, let's take a ride, let's talk. And we start to talk, is there something going on? You seem like you're really angry, you know? And I just listen um, unanimously every single time. I realize there's a hurt there that they need their mother. They need a friend, they need someone to listen. And so when I see even the anger, to me, it's very evident watching uh, this it seems very similar to some of the, the children and women that I've encountered that have experienced extreme trauma, rest of authority. And, um, uh, 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 I'm, a, I'm trying to think of the word like an uncontrollable fear of no one's listening. No one's listening. Like a panic. They're not listening to me, and my life is in danger. And, and really, from a mom's standpoint, I was life in danger. I mean, <laughs> when you think of a child potentially being in mortal danger. Um, yeah, so so I, I do think that that's important that we recognize this as trauma. Now, you have a background in mental health, and why don't you tell everyone what you do, what your profession is, and what you do and what you're studying. So I'm, in, I'm almost, I'm only three semesters away from graduating with my master's um, in, uh, I'll be a, I'll have a master's of science in nursing, I'll be a nurse practitioner, and my specialty is psych mental health. So Absolutely. You're so right about this. I mean, trauma, I don't even know how to explain it. It is so intrinsic to the African-American community right now. So I don't want people to look at this one particular situation, isolate it and parse it out and say, well, what's the big deal about this situation? That's really not what's happening here. Um, what, what's happened here is over 400 years of dehumanization. It was written into the law that slaves were three fifths of a person. They weren't even looked at as a human being by the law. Not to talk about the Jim Crow era and those laws that were put in place systematically to put, make sure that African Americans did not have a fair shot at success in life once they were emancipated. So there are people that are saying, well, slavery's ended, so let's just move on with it. It's not quite that simple. There's, this has been decades and years and years of dehumanization. That's how you can that's the only way that a society can um, justify cruelty, right? We saw in the Nazi era um, with how the Nazis viewed Jews. We see it in, the, in, in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis, they called them cockroaches. So that when you dehumanize someone, it's easier to be cruel to them. So black folk have watched this happen year after year, decade after decade. All of that is trauma. When you keep seeing people who look like you get killed for things that you know, I mean, the studies are very clear, Melody. It's not, it's not 
propaganda. If a white man and a black man are both using marijuana and they get pulled over, the black man nine times out of 10 will get a harsher sentence, a longer sentence than the white man. For just a minute about that, because let's talk about the dehumanization, because for I, I would be willing to guess that most people have never heard that phrase used. And, um, and you're right. So maybe I'm, I'll make sure I'm using this word right. But so the, I, I read once from Caroline Leaf that there's this term called cognitive dissonance. And I can tell you're leaned in, you love this. this I'm, like, I'm, so, I'm such a nerd. I'm like, oh, yes, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. It creates mental chaos in our brains when we are doing something we believe is morally wrong. So we have to make sense of it mentally. Right. So that it doesn't create too much chaos. If we're going to participate in continual things that we think are wrong, we have to make them make sense. Right. Um, so this, this dehumanization, anytime if the enemy has come to still kill and destroy, yeah. he hates us. He hates us as God's children. He wants to steal life. And so he did this with Jews. I was talking to my friend that lives in Israel today. And she said, yes, it reminds me of how they would draw um, Jews with big, um, big noses and call them right. rats. Rats that need to be exterminated. They were consuming our things, and it was easier to justify killing them. We even see this um, really in, with abortion, where it's not a baby; it's a fetus. Cells. Right. Told you about this crazy, ridiculous commercial that um, was about uh, this mom ate a potato chip, and the the baby, and the, they were doing an ultrasound. The baby started dancing, and then I, I forget who it was, but um, they they said, "Nice try, Doritos, for humanizing a fetus." And I was like. What is it if it's not human? Because it is a human, right, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm... And, and so for me, uh, looking at this pattern of how the enemy works, um, what would, how would, so I know you said it in the laws, it was, it was actually written in the law, three-fifths of a human. Yes, three-fifths of a human. So aren't there other things that you would say are subconsciously almost taught to us in American society that we may not be aware of um, so that I could maybe view someone that is, has a darker skin color as a threat and not, even though mentally I wouldn't say that, I maybe would have a jerk or react because it is systemic and it has been taught. But what our ancestors actually used to justify kidnapping of people from Africa and right. to be your slaves. Um, right. Right. So um, particularly the, the African-American man, they would... And, and, and really just African-Americans in general, that they would dehumanize them by um, comparing them to apes and monkeys, right? So we even saw this when Obama was president. We saw Michelle Obama characterized as a, as a monkey, as an ape. Um, and what that was, was we were, the, the African-American man was viewed as someone who needed to be um, subdued because they were dangerous. Right. So they're strong and big and um, they were seen as being dangerous. And then on the other end, um, they were African-American women. A lot of times are looked at almost like, like a pet. Right. So it's like you, you don't know what's good and good for you. Your, your master is going to protect you. Um, we can't give them a right to vote because they don't know what's good. They don't know how to figure life out for themselves, not knowing we've been surviving in Africa for generations before white people got there. You know what I mean? So. Um, those are more of the overt ways that this happens, but I think some of the implicit biases that we have that we don't realize melody is just when you see, let's say you're walking down the street and you see a black person, you hold your, your purse a little tighter or, or you cross the street or you just assume that 
you know, for example, I was, I talk, I was talking to you about this, there are cultural differences, right, between African-Americans and, and white people. We have cultural differences in African culture. If I'm being loud or emoting, that is not seen as threatening. That's just a part of our culture. We, we value sound, okay? We sing loud, we talk loud. Our, my Italian brothers and sisters would understand. They're probably, they're a loud culture to Hispanics are that way, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're loud, right? So, Whereas, and this is, this is, studies have shown this, whereas African-American and more Caucasian cultures, Eastern European cultures, you value being quiet, right? So if someone is really loud and emoting and emotional, African-American cultures would not see that person as irrational, whereas a white person would. The problem here comes when there is um, a difference in power, right? So someone who has a gun, for example, and, and sees someone raising their voice or emoting, and they're thinking they're irrational. They may see that irrationality as something that's violent or could potentially be violent. So they may use more force in that situation versus somebody who they feel is not irrational and not emotional. Does that make sense? So when there's a power differential and lethal force, that bias equals death. There are biases that don't lead to death, but what we've seen in the African-American culture is that when there's that power differential, a cop and a person, and there's lethal force used, that's what brought, has brought about this trauma that we're seeing, is that these biases are ingrained, they're implicit, right? It's the idea that black people are, are, are violent, that we're loud, we emote, we're irrational. These things may not be things that anyone has told you, but even if you notice in movies, if there's like a white character that's a main character, her black friend is like the angry black girl or the straight talking black girl, or there's just these characterizations of black people that if we're not careful, they can implicitly become part of what we think. I would ask people when they're listening to their African-American friends or when you're on scrolling on social media, pay attention to what is easily confirmed in your heart. I, I cannot agree with you more there because when we talk about the there's not some element of dehumanizing the individual, then why can we watch a video of someone being murdered and we start looking for reasons to excuse the murder. It's, 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 it's only African-Americans who have the burden of proof on us of why we should not be killed. <laughs> the burden of proof is on us to prove why we deserve to live, right? So if you watch a video and you say, well, I wanna wait till all the facts come out, that's an implicit bias. There's something there. If you, because I feel like what happened was everybody was outraged about the murder. And then once the looting and the violence started, people, Christians started pulling back a little bit. I think there was something in their hearts that almost, it felt to me, and I'll be honest, Melody, felt to me like, kind of like a confirmation of, well, we, we are who you thought we, you th we thought you were, you know, or it's fine. It's fine if you, you know, I, just, I don't know. It's, it just, it seemed to me like people pulled back just a little bit because it confirmed something that they already were feeling in their hearts. So to me, if you see somebody who's endured trauma, like if you rescue a girl from human trafficking and she sees a man and is triggered by that and acts violent towards that man, 
you would not then punish her or ask her why she's being violent. Like you said, you'd ask her, what's happened? That's the response to trauma. That's called trauma-informed care. Melody, that is what the body of Christ needs right now. The black community is hurting. When a part of the body is hurting, you have to stop and pay attention to it. If your toe was hurting, you would not just ignore it or tell your toe was in the wrong place at the wrong time or blame your toe for being violent. No, you're going to stop and say, whoa, this needs attention. Now, if we go back to our original, like we started this conversation off and we, we talk about marriage counseling, for instance, this is just making me think of a lot of this, um, you know, that I see with, again with husband and wife, when I see a spouse invalidate the other spouse's pain. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, when you went to, to lunch with that girl, you had that text conversation with that woman and you know, I don't trust her. It made me feel like this, oh, we are just being silly. You know, we're just friends. That invalidating of her feelings, um, is a uh, improper use of this covenant relationship. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that stood out to me about Pastor Jonathan's message this week um, and something that he said is he said, you know, it's um, Brandon asked him, you know, Pastor Jonathan on our Zoom staff meeting, why were you crying? And he said, um, you know, I was crying because it hurts to watch another black person being murdered. He said, but really it hurts worse when we, when I voice, we're scared, we're hurting, and my Christian brothers and sisters say, oh, this is all in your head, it's not real, and not listening to the trauma. And we would never do this, or we should never do this to any sort of victim of trauma. Um, and I love the scripture that says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, um, but a, a harsh word stirs up anger. And what, I've, what I have been so burdened with is, the lack of empathy, yeah. Yeah. the lack of really, really listening, really asking, having the courage to, to ask our friends, are you hurting? And then listening. Um, and so I feel that when you talk about trauma-informed care, I mean, I think that um, when you are sitting down with anyone who's been traumatized, the first step would be, right, we swing back to listening, right? Right, we actually call it therapeutic communication. It means I'm not going to find an excuse to blame you for anything that's happened. I'm just going to hear where the hurt is and hear what's happened to you. I'm going to hear your story. And I think that's the salt in the wound for our community. And by our, I mean the black community in America right now is that when someone is vulnerable enough to open up and say, you know what? When my husband goes out at night on his bike, I genuinely hold my breath a little bit until he comes back. When I say that and you tell me it's the media that's conspiring to put that in my head, or when I say that my life matters and you tell me, well, all of them do. Yes, that is so true. You're right. However, when Jesus left 99 sheep for one, he was not saying the 99 sheep did not matter. He's saying this one is in trouble. So I need to go after this one right now. And that is all the black community is trying to say. This is not political, Melody. It is not about the left or the right. It's about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And if we allow the enemy come in to divide, he's going to do a really good job of making sure that we don't get this right, especially for future generations.
And so I feel like in this moment, what, what is required of us is just to be humble and just say, you know what, perhaps there's a different perspective than what I've held on to all my life, what I've sat in and been comfortable in. And let me just be honest with you. If you're uncomfortable talking about this stuff, search your heart. Search your heart. I said this on my Instagram page, and I, I meant it truly. If somebody taking a knee during the national anthem offends you, but someone putting a knee on someone's neck until he dies does not, oh my gosh, like we have to check our hearts. That breaks God's heart. Whether it's a noose or a knee, that is traumatizing to the black community. Both of those two things have one goal, to take away life. And it brings brokenness. But I'll tell you what, God is at the place of brokenness. And he's leading us as a church. He's removed all distractions through COVID and the stay at home and everything else that's going on. All distractions have been removed. And he's forcing us to look at this brokenness, even though it's uncomfortable. That's why the Holy Spirit is the comforter. He knew we'd be uncomfortable sometimes. He knew there'd be some discomfort. He took Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones and said, look at them. Look at this. They have no breath in them. If in the moment that that man was on that sidewalk calling out for his mom, if that does not make the mother in you rise up and say, this is not okay, Man, Melody, I don't know what else to say. Like, you've got to check your heart. Even I have had to check my heart and say, God, as David said, create in me a clean heart. See if there's any way in me that's not of you. Right? It reminded me of um, when scripture talks about in Deuteronomy and Leviticus about unintentional sin. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen overt racism. I've told you stories about things that I've seen up in South Louisiana, I, I think that the parish, which is kind of where, I could be wrong on this, but I was told at least once that it was where KKK originated from. So like I, we, I saw it there, yeah. overt, obvious racism. Um, and so many of those watching right now, I don't think they would still be continuing this conversation if they had major horrific issues with overt racism. What we're talking about is this underlying, um, excusing. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, excusing and um, trivializing the pain of our yeah. our friends and yeah, those that we love. And what we're not saying, I just want to clarify this, what we are not saying, Mercy would agree, is that law enforcement is bad. All law enforcement is bad. No. And they, to say my black friends matter, my, that, that their lives matter, is not... And this is part of listening, not just hearing, but listening to what is being said. So I had a friend who um, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so breast cancer, is a, a cancer awareness month comes up. She comes to me and she says, I have breast cancer. Well, my dad died of esophageal cancer. Esophageal cancer matters too. Well, she, it would be right. a horrific thing to do when someone is, in, is traumatized. Yeah. This is what we're dealing with now. And could you hear Listen, could you could we wave the Christian banner above our above all democratic banner? Could we wave that I bear the name of Christ? And mercy, when I look at scripture from Genesis to Revelation, I yeah. see the thread where God loves every race, every nationality. They're all equal. Where God is a God of justice, yeah. that He 
for the poor, the widow, the, the foreigner, the orphan, this yes. is his heart. And to me, I can't read scripture without seeing it. Um, right. This is a, we should all be quick to listen, slow to speak, right. and angry. But I think very quick to speak, quick to become angry and slow to listen. Real quick. So we all seem to just log off Facebook for a little bit and just take a step back. In case you miss it, I said it before you make a, you have the courage to make a public post. You need to have the courage to have a private conversation and to listen. That is so key because we are in community with one another. That's what the, that's what God did on purpose. Many parts, one body, one head, which is Christ. And so if one part is hurting, he's saying, let's rush to that part. Let's all just go there and be, the, the thing about this is that, Melody, we can be in church together, side by side, worshiping and rejoicing together. And I can rejoice with you. But the truth of the matter is that it is very uncomfortable for a lot of people to sit with the African-American community and suffer with us. Especially if you feel like, like you weren't a part of inflicting the hurt. We know that. But the truth of the matter is that when someone is hurting, if someone loses a child or loses a father, or loses a spouse, even if you don't know what to say, just knowing that you're there I'd rather you be there and awkwardly stumble through a conversation than say nothing at all. Okay. You would never not reach out to that person just because you felt it was uncomfortable. I didn't, I don't know what to say, but you would still want that person to know they're supported. Right. People that have actually told me, I said, I'll say, have you had a conversation? You know, because honestly, I already knew the stance of law enforcement. You know, I have, well, I have caught friends. You know, this <laughs> <laughs> Enforcement. I have top friends. Um, right. and we already talked about some of the training videos at instant response. So I already knew that side. And so because I have, but listen, if we haven't li really had the conversation to listen, but I think a lot of people are scared. One, uh, several of my friends have said, I don't know what to say. It's awkward. And I don't want to offend someone. Um, and so what would you say to that? And how would you start a conversation? How would you suggest they start a conversation? Honestly, even if you just start with, I don't even know what to say. Because the truth of the matter is the silence is affirmation. And usually you're going to affirm something that you're not necessarily in support of. Because if you say nothing, I don't know where you stand. So if you are in relationship with someone, an African-American friend, and you want to reach out, I would just say, just start with exactly how you feel. I don't, I don't even know what to say, but I'm sorry. Or, you know, I'm sorry you're going through this. I'm sorry that this is happening. We are sorry that this is happening too. You know, it's not that you should feel guilty because you're white. That's not the issue here. The issue here is that things are unjust and God has put us on earth to bring his kingdom here. And so we should seek justice. That's Micah 6, 8, right? He has told us what he wants us to do. And part of that is seeking justice. And just affirm with your friend, African-American friend, hey, I want to stand beside you through this. Tell me how I can best do that. A lot of people in my world, I've been encouraging to just become more aware. I think the listening leads you down a journey of discovery. That's what it did for me. When I listened to my African-American friends, I, I went down, I was like, I just want to know more. What were the Jim Crow laws? Who was Emmett Till? When all these names come up and bring up a reaction and trigger things, I want to understand the full effect. I, I need to understand, if you understand the real trauma of what's happened to African-Americans in America and your heart is for the Lord, there's no way that you're not going to feel compassion and empathy. 
That's the truth. You will feel the brokenness. You will feel the overwhelming sense of this is not right. When you realize the mortgage industry was built in such a way, it was called redlining. They would give the terrible loans or no loans at all to African-Americans. So they had to move into the ghettos. As they moved into the ghettos, guess what? The educational system is worse, right? Because the schools are worse. When the schools are worse, students get expelled. When students get expelled, they get in trouble. When they get in trouble, they get incarcerated. And so it's this cycle of poverty and inequity that just keeps leaning on itself. So you can't now blame people for a system that was not set up for them to succeed from the inception. If you notice, a lot of African-Americans have a hard time with the word reconciliation because things were never reconciled in the first place. When their ancestors were brought here was under the guise of slavery, was not a fully restored relationship. So what the Lord wants to do, and I believe he's doing Melody through this, is a restoration of his body. It doesn't matter to me what the world's response is. It does matter to me what the church's response is. And I'm telling you, the silence is deafening. The, 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 Minimizing and the castigating is so hurtful because we've rejoiced with all of us, our, our, our white sisters and brothers in church, and now we're giving an invitation of, will you sit with us and suffer with us? And not everyone is ready to take that invitation. And that hurts. It is hurt upon hurt, right? Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just feel... Let us not sacrifice truth on the altar of politics. This is not left or right. This is just and unjust. This is light or darkness. And this is God's heart. This is God's heart. This is the truth of the matter. If your Africans and African-American sisters and brothers are not at the table restored in the church, we can't see the full expression of who God is. Just like one gender cannot encompass all that God is, one culture cannot encompass all that God is. We need everybody. We need the whole body. Brokenness cannot cure brokenness. Wholeness can do that. In that valley of bones, when, the bre- when, 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 when he put the muscle on him, they still didn't have breath. There was a point at which the Lord had to put his breath in those bones. And I believe those words that George Floyd uttered, I can't breathe. It's become an anthem of justice. There's so many African-Americans in this country that have not been able to breathe. When a cop pulls them behind them, they're holding their breath. When their husbands and sons leave, they're holding their breath. When my son leaves for college, I'm going to be holding my breath a little bit. Right? So there's this idea of breath and what God is breathing into the, his church. And I'm telling you, Melody, we've got to get this right. We have got to listen to one another. We've got to sit with one another just the same way you would if your best friend lost their spouse or their child. Even though it was awkward, even though it was uncomfortable, you would sit with them in their loss. We're just asking, will you just sit with us as we try? You know, one of the names of God that I love so much is is he's the balm of Gilead. He's a salve. He's an ointment. This is a wound that has festered for so long. And every time this happens, it's like ripping 
off that bandage and taking off that scar tissue and making this wound bleed again. And that is why you see anger. It comes from pain. It comes from trauma. The Bible says in your anger, don't sin. And that ideally is what we would see. But to be honest with you, people are hurting. People are afraid. Fear and pain causes you to do things that you would not do normally. Right? I think the Lord is looking for people that will be a repairer of the breach. And, um, and then we'll rush to the side of the wound and bring I'll rush to the side of the wound and bring healing. That's it. Instead of just going up and telling them to go back in the corner and be quiet, it's not a reality, you know. Um, and so um, thank you so much for that. I know we're running short on time. I would love to maybe continue this conversation another time. I do think that is not and should not be a one-time conversation. If you should have this conversation with your friends to open up and, and start talking to those around you, um, make sure it's not a bandwagon um, one-time thing, that this is an ongoing conversation that needs to be had, that we need to hear one another's heart. And I, I think that if there were more gentle answers, more listening, um, and again, I'm going to say that I really do believe mercy in my whole heart. First of all, that I am sorry, um, that I, I apologize on behalf of um, of, our, of our nation. I know I can't speak for everyone, but I do speak. Um, I do see a brokenness and, a, and God revealing unintentional sin, unintentional excusing that we weren't aware of. And, and I'm thankful that the Lord lifts a veil and, um, and reveals it so there can be healing. But I do believe, Mercy, that this is a tipping point for America. And that this is not going to be legislated. This is going to have to come from the church. It cannot be politicized. It has to be a humanity issue, a heart issue. Yeah. We, as the church and the body of Christ, don't hear God's heart and start to listen. Until we be the ministers of healing and reconciliation. If we are not that voice, if we are not the voice of restoration and repair, um, then I worry mercy for, for our, our, our nation and really for the image that it, it gives Christ. When in the name of Christ, we, um, we ignore suffering and injustice um, and, and misrepresent. Uh, so I, my prayer is that each of us would search our hearts and, and ask the Lord. And, and listen, um, ladies, if, what does it hurt to say, God, search my heart? You know, God, is there anything, is there anything in me that I is there? Is there anything that has been intrinsically taught? Have I dehumanized or excused um, or not listened? Yeah. Um, ha- have I been silent and should have been a voice? Yeah. Have I heard more about what people will say about me? And, um, uh, you know, so I, I pray that you'll search your hearts and just ask the Lord. And I also pray that you'll be a, um, a peacemaker. <laughs> you know, not peacemaker. Yeah. Between a peacemaker, it's uncomfortable, and a peacekeeper. Um, yeah. so I think this is the, the, the time. The time is now. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, and to the people that may, may say, you know, is, are there examples of racism in the Bible? Absolutely. <laughs> There's tons of, 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 of the response. If you think, okay, what, what is God saying in this? What, is, what does Jesus think about that? Think about Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to be with those people. He's like, they're weird. They're crazy. I don't want to be with those people. 
And even in the belly of the whale, his heart was not necessarily changed. His direction changed, but not his heart. And can I just tell you right now, the direction is changing, but God has got to come in and change our hearts. He's got to come in and transform our hearts. And if your heart is for the Lord, then you will pray that prayer. And if you do, I promise you, God is going to reveal some things. This situation, COVID, all this stuff has revealed so much that was already in our hearts. I think this is another one of those tipping points. This is another one of those watershed moments, right? And when we look back on history, we're going to wonder, God, if we don't get this right, what, it, what the ripple effect is for the next generation? Because I'll tell you what, this generation is, this next generation is for justice. They are bold and they're tenacious. And I think if we, if we don't do our part, it is, it's the onus is on us because that ripple effect w- will be generational. We're only three generations away from humans owning other humans in America. Three. That's it. So what could happen if we actually do repent and do turn to the Lord and do start to heal this wound? What could happen in three generations in America? Maybe, just maybe, my son doesn't have to talk to his son and have the talk with him like I did and teach him how to stay alive when he gets pulled over. Maybe, just maybe, the church can actually be a bride without spot or wrinkle. I have hope that we can do this. I mean, the Holy Spirit is already moving. We can tell because there's their repentant hearts. People are open, more open than they've ever been to talk about this melody, more open than I've ever seen it in America. And I am so hopeful that this may be the turning point. And I love that, just that... Um, being a bridge builder, and and this can happen one conversation at a time, not just just with uh, people um, who disagree with you here on their side, but also being a bridge builder with those who um, you know that maybe you. So I, I've been a, a lot of the, my phone conversations this week have not just been with my black brothers and sisters, but really from people who you know really even police officers' wives that were scared that if they say this or I'm trying to process this and I. I like when he goes out the door and like I, I don't want you know and so they're having these images and so for me to to be a bridge builder and to just have conversations but have you talked to them have you listened um and so part I feel like I've been on the phone all week just being a mediator and and um and even uh pastor Aaron our, uh, one of our pastors in law enforcement he was on the panel this weekend and after uh the service was over I could tell he was heavy and I, and I told him you know when you're a bridge you have to carry the weight and it's heavy to be be a a bridge builder, but it's necessary. And so there's going to be some, I've been hopeful because every conversation I've had, we really listen to one another. We realize that there's an injustice and that it needs to be done. We all land here, you know, (laughs) we all land to that. God loves us. We should love listen to to them and and run to the women. But I know we're out of time. Um, like I said, I would love to maybe have another um, I'll try to post. Well, I know that just mercy is out right now. It has some language in it. So I just want to preface that, but also just a phenomenal movie. Highly recommend you watch it. You can maybe watch it today to filter out the language, but, um, I think it's, yeah, yeah, really great movie. And- Absolutely. And I think you're so right about that. A great first step for anybody who's like, what do I do next? Just resource yourself 
honestly, The Color of Compromise is a phenomenal book. It's written from a biblical worldview. It just gives you good backdrop. Just Mercy is an excellent one. 13th is another documentary on Netflix that you can watch to give you just a different perspective. Have some conversations. And can I just say, Melody, have conversations with your other white friends too. Yeah, absolutely. That's right? <laughs> these conversations need to happen. So don't only, it's not only these conversations with the African-American, it's with your white friends. It's having the boldness when someone says something that's off color, calling them out on it, like, Pete, like Paul did to Peter. When Peter was being racist toward the Gentiles, he was like, hey, Peter, yo, Cephas, you need to buckle up. That ain't right. And having the courage to have those conversations. And guess what, guys? It is going to take courage. And it is messy. This is not a, a do once and we fix it all. We can't, right? So I try not to get overwhelmed. I just take it one step at a time, one conversation at a time, one person at a time. And I pay attention to my heart. I guard my heart against offense. I guard my heart against being defensive and being angry. And I just ask the Lord to help me see things like he sees them. Ladies, if you pray that prayer, I'm telling you, he's going to break your heart for what breaks his. And, I, and I, I just believe that we will see better days for the church, that we really can be one body, one body under Christ. Hey, thank you for listening to The Rise Podcast. In a world full of intel and opinions, voices, and polarizations, I pray you will have the courage to turn off the news and pick up the phone to talk to a friend who has a different experience than you do. It is in this iron sharpening iron where we find the truth in the middle of the extremes. I pray the word of God, not the opinion of man, will inform you. I truly believe that if our heart posture is humble for God to search us and to show us anything that offends Him, He will be faithful to make us more like Him. My prayer is that God will heal our nation, but I believe this has to happen one heart at a time. May it begin with us. Thank you again for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Arise Podcast, give us a review if you're blessed by it, and share it with a girl who may need to be encouraged. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.